Who is Jesus? What is he doing? And what does it mean to follow him in the world today? My name is Matt Lewis. This is the Follower Podcast, and everyone is invited to the conversation. For the sake of the Follower Podcast, we're in session two of Hope Jesus, and today we're talking about the cross and what the cross means for the gospel. And we, we start in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 to 4, uh, because it's the original apostolic gospel. And when we read it, it says this, it says, I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. In other words, Paul is not just making this up, he's receiving something and he's then handing that over to other people because this thing is of first importance. What is this thing? That Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said, and that he was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. What's the key issue here? The Christ. So it's not that someone died. People were crucified and, and, and died all the time in this context. It's who did the dying. And so if we want to understand why the gospel is powerful, we have to understand who the Christ is. And that's what we looked at yesterday. The second part is to say that this Christ died for our sins. This is good news for some reason. We've got to figure out why the death of the Christ for our sins is good news, not just for people of that time, but for all people in all places at all times. That's what we want to look at today. So to understand that, we're going to pick up where we left off and Jesus is uh, coming into Jerusalem. Now, here's what's important to understand. Jesus was prophet, priest, and king. He's unique in scripture because he fulfills all roles, okay? In this particular passage, we see Jesus stepping into his prophetic office. The man's being a prophet. Now, what is a prophet? Uh, to help you try and understand what prophets would do, try and think of Banksy. Again, this is not my idea. This is a Tim Mackey idea, which I think is just so brilliant. Banksy is an artist who has demonstrations, he puts these symbols all over this place that reveal reality as it is and speak to realities that are coming. And he does this through art, right? Uh, prophets of the Old Testament were in some ways performance artists, walking around the wall all kinds of number of times, lying in their feces in weird ways, uh, doing all kinds of things. Prophets would, would demonstrate realities and they were experts at this. Okay, and, and how they would demonstrate the realities is they would use the existing um, sort of intellectual lexicon of the, the, Isra the Jewish people. So what I mean by that is there were stories and ideas that were built into the consciousness of Israel. And whenever you would say that, it would trigger realities. An example for you is if I say Big Mac, you think McDonald's, right? Okay, because I don't have to explain what McDonald's is. You live in a culture where the idea of McDonald's saturates your consciousness. And so in 2000 years time, if I talk about a Big Mac and someone doesn't know what McDonald's is, <clears throat> they may read that and just move over it. Maybe they think they're talking about a cool, like a tall dude whose name is Mac McDonald. I don't know. But because we live in the context, as soon as a word is said, it triggers a whole understanding of things. Now, prophets understood this. If you will, their minds and souls, and Jesus is no exception, were saturated in the tradition and culture of Israel. Saturated in them. So they, they thought, they spoke, they acted scripture, right? They acted the, the law of the prophets. And Jesus is no exception because Jesus is a prophet. 
And so particularly from the time of the triumphal entry, you've got to start paying real attention because Jesus is not doing anything by accident. Everything he's doing is a prophetic declaration about why he is doing it and the meaning of what he is doing, everything he's doing. It's just so full of these prophetic utterances, okay, this performance art. And so we said that um, yesterday, we said this triumphal entry, right? Jesus is coming into town and he's coming into Jerusalem. He's coming into Jerusalem at the time of the Passover. Mind-blowing. Right? Think about this. Jesus has been ministering. He's healing people. While he's healing people, they'll get healed. And what's the next thing he says? Don't go tell anyone. Why? Because my time has not yet come. Then he says, my time has come. Now it's time for the Son of Man to be handed over and I must go to Jerusalem. So in other words, there's a shift now in activity. Before, Jesus was trying to avoid attention and he was trying to kind of subversively do what he was doing. Now there's this shift in intentionality. He knows the time has come and he has prophetically coincided this with the Passover. He hasn't prophetically coincided this with Yom Kippur. That's, we're going to talk about that because that's going to bust your mind tomorrow but he's prophetically coincided this with the Passover okay at the Passover he's on his way to Jerusalem they think there are about 50,000 people who lived in Jerusalem but at the time of Passover an extra 150,000 or so tourists we're looking at a really really busy space when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, a crowd gathers. We just celebrated this in Holy Week, Palm Sunday, and they are laying palm leaves down. They're laying their cloaks down, and they are singing Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. They're singing, uh, save us, Jesus. You're the King of Israel. Save us. And when they're singing that, their expectation is that he's going to be the Messiah, the Son of Man, and everything we learned yesterday, who's going to come now and, and overthrow the Romans and put Israel into power, right? That's their expectation. Jesus prophetically gets a donkey. He prearranges this donkey. Why? Because he's being Banksy in this moment. <laughs> he's riding into town on a donkey intentionally because he's not trying to avoid their assumption that he's the Messiah. He's trying to affirm that. And how do we know this? Because he is, he's doing an action that's embedded in Zechariah. And Zechariah talks about how the king will come riding on a donkey. Okay, so, he, so already there's a prophetic action in that. Then he comes up to the, to the temple of Jerusalem after the triumphal entry. Um, and, and here's what's powerful. He, um, he overthrows, he does this whole thing uh, in the temple. But just before we get there, there's this interesting thing with a fig tree and the temple and how all this ties together in terms of what he's actually saying that he's about to do ultimately on the cross. So let's read. This is in Mark chapter 11, verse uh, 12 to 18. So when Jesus comes into, into Jerusalem, he gets off the donkey. It says that he looks around the temple with his friends, and then he leaves and he goes to Bethany, has sleeps a night or whatever. Then it says the next day on his way back from Bethany. So now he's on his way back to the temple. This is where we pick it up, all right? Uh, Mark chapter 11, verse 12 to 18. It says the next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. 
He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. Take special note of which tables he overturned because that's going to be important. And he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said this, listen carefully to these words, very important. Is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him because they feared him. Because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. Okay, now let's work through the story. Number one, what did the fig tree mean? <laughs> so, so powerful, all right? Um, Jesus actually unpacks the fig tree later on in the text, but uh, there, is this, there is this verse in Micah chapter 7. There's this passage in Micah chapter 7. When Micah is talking about the state of Israel, and then he's talking about uh, the picture of this coming king and, and basically the wrath of God that's going to deal with a nation that is paying lip service to God, but has no heart after God. Okay. And this is what it says, Micah chapter seven, verse one. Listen to this. It says, woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned, there is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood and each hunts the other with a net. Okay, so Jesus, I remember his mind, his soul, his body is saturated in the, the understanding of the Jewish world. He knows that he's humming Micah at this moment and his disciples are no different. This is their worldview. So when he's cursing the fig tree, what is he looking for? Because it's strange, right? Has Jesus got a beef? Has he got, is he upset with fig trees? Is he, like, is he suddenly just angry with fig trees? Is he really that temperamental that just because he's hungry and there's no food, he curses the thing and it dies? No, that's not the case at all. He's pointing to a reality that, will, that you'll see later in Mark if you keep reading. This is a prophetic move. This is a Banksy move, right? He's saying even though it's not the season, fig trees had a pre-season fruit, which would be evidence that they would produce fruit, right? That's what it says in Micah chapter 7, those early figs. He goes up to the fig tree, there's no early figs, and he curses the fig tree. Then later on, after the whole temple thing, which we're not going to get to this later thing now, this is where he comes back and they see the fig trees died. And then he says this powerful thing. He says, I tell you what, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain be moved and it'll be thrown into the sea. Which mountain is he talking about? He's, what's, what is in front of him in that moment? The temple, the temple mount, right? So is this some kind of declaration about how if you muster up enough faith, you can literally move mountains by faith? No, what Jesus is saying in this moment, what he's declaring is that everything he's just done, what we'll see in a moment in the temple, if you embrace the faith of this, he's saying that this is a certainty. This temple will be thrown down. This is going to happen. And this new kingdom is going to come. And you and I can enter into that new kingdom. That's the primary emphasis of what Jesus is talking about in the fig tree. Go read it for yourself. It's really, really powerful. Um, but let's carry on reading, right? I, I hope that's helpful. Is this helpful? If this is helpful, give me some five and thumbs up and some fire and some good things. If you don't like it, if it's heresy, give me a thumbs down. If I'm going too fast and shouting, I don't know, you'll just have to endure that. I just get excited. I don't know what to tell you. Um, 
Is this the first time you've heard about this stuff with the fig tree? It was the first time I heard about it, the first time I heard about it, and it blew my mind. It was really, really good. Uh, just give me some thumbs up, peeps. I want to know that you're there. Erica's there. Yannis is there. Oh, Yannis, you beautiful German. Rowanna's here. Okay, everyone's still good. Just checking in. So, he curses the fig tree. Prophetic move. He's, he's, he's pointing to what he's about to do, and we'll see how what he just what he does in the temple in just a moment is a re-emphasis of the fig tree. And you're going, what does any of this have to do with the cross exactly? You see, we've so misunderstood the cross that we've divorced it from messianic prophetic expectation. That's part of the problem. Anyway, we keep going. Uh, <clears throat> so he curses the fig tree and he has this moment. I can just imagine being one of Jesus' disciples. He must be, they must be like, you, Jesus is such a hectic guy. Um, then on reaching Jerusalem, the main city where the temple was, Jesus enters the temple courts and began, he began to drive out those who were buying and selling there. Why did he have a problem with buying and selling? Uh, was that primarily the issue? No, it's Passover. You need to buy and sell. There needs to be, the, people got to buy their sacrifice. They got to give their sacrifice. They got to do some things. So the primary issue is not so much the buying and selling of the stuff, right? Uh, let's carry on reading. It says, he overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. Now, to understand why this is really, really important, you have to understand the context and the culture of the time. Number one, at Passover time, you would come, you would buy your sacrifice, you would give your sacrifice at the temple, okay? And this is a general practice at the temple. If you were rich, you could get a lamb, a spotless lamb, and that'd be great. If you were poor, if you didn't have money, you would buy a dove, okay? Because you couldn't afford a lamb. Interesting that Mary and Joseph are ones, they got to buy a dove, which tells you about Jesus' economic bracket, sideline. But back to the main point. So, so which table does Jesus overturn? He overturns the table of the ones selling doves. Why? Because in this context, the least of these, the poorest of the poor, were the ones who were being taken advantage of. The guys who couldn't afford things, the system was exploiting. Okay, second thing, which court is Jesus in when he comes into the courts of the temple? We know that he was in the court of the Gentiles, right? The court of the Gentiles was a specific concession that was made within that time so that Gentiles, although not Jewish and they couldn't enter the main temple, would still have access to the temple. And what's happened is this corruption has overtaken the court of the Gentiles and is now tarnishing a specific intention of the Father. And what is the specific intention of the Father? That this would be for all people at all times and all nations. This is a really, really big part of what the cross is all about, right? Um, how do we know that this is true? Because Jesus is directly quoting He's being a prophet. He's doing performance art. He's directly quoting two passages, Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah chapter 7. So let's have a quick read over here of what, uh, what's happening in Isaiah 56. It says this, and the foreigners, so this is a big comment on how we're dealing with foreigners in our world today, just as a thought. The foreigners who joined themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, uh, these I will bring to my holy mountain, okay, my hill, and I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. 
Can you hear the language? Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for, for which people? For all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Jesus is directly quoting this passage from Isaiah and what he's pointing out is that although you've got this fancy temple and, you, and all the externals of your faith are in order, the internals are bankrupt. There, there are no figs on the tree. Then he carries on, Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 8 to 11. I love how Jesus is so freaking intelligent. We can just smash these two things together and he starts pointing out a whole bunch of things. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 7, 8 to 11, it says this. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. What is he saying? He's saying, you can do these things all day long. You can have your fancy temple. You can do all your ritual sacrifices. And then you can ignore the poor. You can worship other gods. You can submit to the lords of empire. You can have your temple in Jerusalem in the shadow of the palace of Rome. And you can say you're worshiping Jesus, but still serve the structures that are overshadowing the temple. And I'm telling you that if you turn, if you do that, you're turning the house of God into a den of robbers and God sees it. There are no figs on the tree. Do you get it? If you get it, just give a high five or a fire or an amen or a something. I just want to know that everybody's still alive. I get so excited. Man, I get so excited. <sighs> I want to make sure everybody's there. I'm seeing a lot of these, seeing a lot of these. I know, I know I get excited if I'm shouting. Uh, Mira's giving me a, a tongue on the side of her mouth. I don't know what that means. Rowanna, we got this. That's great. Merle, you got three flames. Oof, now we're getting a bonfire. That's good. Anybody else? Anybody else got some love for me? Tap some little hearts on the side here if you got some hearts for me. Give me some hearts. Just want to make sure that we are, we're all still connected. I don't want to lose anybody. Blaine is there. That's good. Okay. <clears throat> Ilana is good. Something beautiful. So now, uh, you might be saying, Matt, that sounds really, really cool. <laughs> We've got a lot of hearts going on. Amen. Benjamin Nob's got stars in his eyes. Come on. Uh, you might say, Matt, that's really, really cool, but how do we know that's actually what was going on? How do we know that? How do you how do we know you're not reading into this stuff? Uh, in order to know that, I want you to look at the response of the people. Okay? So, um, <clears throat> Jesus does all these things and then, and then notice there's two responses that happen in this moment. Hi, Jacques you're beautiful. Two responses happen. Number one, the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and they began, okay, so they began after hearing this. So now you're going to ask yourself, later on there's a crucifixion and there's a whole plot to kill Jesus. Where does, where does that all come from? It's because it's the it's day two, <laughs> when Jesus rolls up into Jerusalem, he steps into the most sacred space in the society and he makes this kind of radical prophetic declaration. 
And when a chief priest who is as saturated in their mind and worldview in the scriptures as Jesus is, hears the sees this performance art, experiences this, this ancient Banksy going on, they immediately know what he is referring to. Okay, because Jesus is the Messiah. He's not less than their expectation. He's just more than their expectation. Makes sense. And so they get afraid because they understand what he's saying and they understand that there's no, that he's right. There are no figs on the tree. And then he, later on, he's, gonna, he's, he's saying things like, I'm going to tear down this temple and rebuild it in three days in my body. There's a whole thing going on there, right? And so immediately their fear makes them start to look for a way to kill him, right? Because they're afraid of what he's teaching. And why are they also afraid? Because the whole crowd, the 150,000 visitors and the 50,000 residents maybe, some of those people who are now seeing this performance art, it's dramatic. One of the gospels tells us that Jesus has a whip as he's doing this stuff. He's throwing tables over. He's preventing people from walking through with animals. This is not a subtle, like, let's go pray in a corner. This is a, this is a flash mob in the middle of a, of a crowded mall. That's what's going on here. Uh, when the crowds hear it, they are amazed at his teaching. What does that tell us? That the kingdom of God is often good news for those who don't flourish under the broken systems of the empire. In other words, if we live in an unjust world as we do, and if we are currently at large under a kind of occupation. So so this world is not our home. We're in exile in some ways as Christian people, right? If the system works for us, then the gospel might not be good news for us. Because if the system works for us, we might find ourselves in the side on the side of the religious leaders who get afraid when Jesus comes and challenges the system. Quick side note. I'm not saying God has caused corona. Uh, if you want to have a conversation about that, I completely don't believe that. One of the uh, products of what's happening in Corona, however, is that there is a massive flattening of the world, right? So Corona doesn't care how much money you make. Corona is helping us realize that we are all connected. It's helping us realize that maybe our systems haven't been working. And And when that revelation starts to shake us, when Jesus rolls up into the temple and starts shaking things in our world, uh, using, entering into the tragedy of this virus and then repurposing that stuff for good and glory, when he starts shaking, we got to figure out, are we afraid or are we amazed? Because what side of that equation are we on? Are we trying to maintain the status quo or are we crying out for God's renewal in our society? Okay, because, and this is so important in terms of what the cross is doing in our lives. Okay, this has everything to, you might say, man, I understand what this has to do with the cross. This has everything to do with the cross because this is what Jesus is coming to do. He's bringing a new kingdom and a new reality. Okay, and very often we can fall into the pattern that we see here in the temple. We can observe our religious traditions. We can go fill out religious buildings. But in reality, we're, we're still polluting the court of the Gentiles. We're still uh, taking advantage of the least of these. We're, there is no fruit on the fig tree. And Jesus comes to say, what I'm about to do is I'm about to destabilize. I'm about to break down one empire and I'm about to, I'm about to establish a whole new kingdom. And salvation saves us into that kingdom. So if you don't like what Jesus is doing here, then you might not like why he's saving you in the first place.
Good. How's that landing with me, with anybody? Any thoughts, any comments, any ideas? Uh, I need to take a sip of water. So feel free to do hearts, stars, high fives, fires if you need to. Just need to take a breather so that uh, I make sure we stay on track here. Are we all with me? I just want to keep checking in. Just give me a high five or a hands. Okay, we've got hearts and stars and all the things. Uh, Muir's mind is being blown. <laughs> Muir's mind is being blown. Benjamin loves this deep, beautiful. Okay. <clears throat> so, the chief priests make this plan to kill Jesus because they're afraid of Jesus. Jacques is surfing the wave of these thoughts. Beautiful. Um, so good. Exclamation mark. Beautiful. Um the high priests now make this plan to kill Jesus. Why? Because they're afraid. Why are they afraid? Because the people are amazed at his teaching. Because not only is he insulting them, he's actually gathering a crowd who agree with him. With him. Uh, and that's, uh, that's a threat. And they see that immediately. They see the power of this threat. Also be aware that yesterday, so the, the, the event of the temple is today, one day ago, there was a whole crowd gathering shouting Hosanna. And if this crowd really believes he's Hosanna and now this Messiah person is in the temple saying the things he's saying, that doesn't bode well for the religious leaders. That's a big problem. Um, and so they set out to now kill him. So we, uh, we pick up in uh, Mark chapter 14, verse 60 to 65. I fast forwarded through so much uh, now to get here. But again, we only have so much time. Uh, and I want to read it and then we're going to pick out a few things that are, again, we're building a case to try and help us understand what's happened at the cross, what actually went down there. So remember, <clears throat> Jesus is intentionally communicating uh, a messianic expectation because that's exactly what he's trying to say. <laughs> because he's not denying that he's the Messiah. He is saying, I am the Messiah. What we'll find, though, is that he reframes what that means, uh, not in a way that's less than the expectation of the people, but in a way that supersedes it, a way that starts with their expect, but then goes, way, goes into the stratosphere with that and repurposes a lot of what they were thinking. So Mark chapter 14, verse 60 to 65 in your workbooks, it says this, Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, are you not going to answer? So Jesus is on trial now. He's been arrested in the middle of the night uh, in, in uh, Gethsemane. And then he's been brought before the council and to, to be tried. The reason why they're doing this cloak and dagger under the, under the guise of darkness is because they know this whole thing is bogus. This whole thing's illegal. I've got a question. Hold on. Let's uh, see what's going down here. Oh, that's just fire. That's not a question. But thank you. Thank you, Musa. Okay, good. <laughs> Maybe keep, keep comments in the comments and, and only put questions in the questions. That's good. Um, so he's been arrested. It's the, it's the middle of the night because they know that this thing's bogus. Uh, and so now he's before the leading religious council. And it says this, Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, are you not going to answer? In other words, they're accusing him, accusing him, accusing him. And the Bible says with many false accusations that actually don't make sense or hold up. What is the testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and he gave no answer. Prophetic, prophetic declaration. Banksy, performance art. Why? Because his mind is saturated in, in Jewish teaching and he knows that there's a whole Jewish understanding of the Messiah that said he would be silent like a sheep before sure, right? So, so it's prophetic art. He's declaring stuff. 
Um, <clears throat> Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? Be, be careful to notice the question. Okay, what is he asking? He's not asking, are you the eternal insurance policy for people to believe a thing and go to heaven one day when they die? That's not what the Bible is teaching. Right, that's not what they're expecting and it's not what, he, what they're asking. They're asking a different thing. Um, <clears throat> and what does Jesus say? So if ever there was a moment where we were going, I don't know, is Jesus really this Messiah guy? Are we not waiting this thing too much? Is it, is, it, is it not maybe stretching it a little bit too far to try and think about Jesus in these broad terms? I think maybe, maybe Matt's making some stuff up here. All I'm saying is listen to the words of Jesus, right? Because this is what he says. He says, I am, echoes of a whole bunch of things, sidetrack, we won't go into that. I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man. What's that phrase? Son of Man. Uh, we said it yesterday, let me say it again. Jesus was referred to as many things throughout the New Testament and throughout the, the whole Bible, really. The thing that Jesus uses to the title that Jesus ascribes to himself most often in the Gospels is the title, the Son of Man. And we'll see why that is important in just a second. You will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds with heaven. In, in, the clouds of heaven. If ever there was a mic drop moment, <laughs> it's, oh my gosh, I get excited. It's the middle of the freaking night. There is this crowd that has gathered and they want to now kill Jesus. He, this, this moment, it's sealing, his, it's sealing the deal. He knows that. And yet he steps up to the mic and he just lays it thick. There's no subtlety here. No, nobody's confused about what he's saying. He is clear about it. You will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest then tore his clothes. There's something there, but we won't go into it. Uh, why do you need any more witnesses, he asked. You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him. They struck him with their fists and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. The nature of the response should give you an indication of the weight of the claim. If Jesus was just saying, I'm just one more religious leader, I'm just a nice um, spiritual guru, teacher, uh, I'm just one option among many, <clears throat> what I'm about to do here has no threat to anybody here in this room, and it's got, certainly got no threat to Rome or anything that's going on there. I, I just really, essentially, I just want to have nice, quiet prayer meetings. And uh, we'll just carry on doing that. And really, this, is, this doesn't affect you guys. This is just like some kind of privatized spiritual thing that makes Peter people better people. That's, that's really all this is. If that was his claim, why would they be responding like this? You with me? The reason why they are so outraged is because his claim is so outrageous. That's why. Because he is saying something so powerful here. Why would the high priest ask Jesus about being the Messiah? Because that's exactly what he's been saying he is the whole time. Uh, how does Jesus answer the question? In the affirmative. He is the Messiah. Now, who is the Son of Man? I quickly want to read this to you because Daniel, man, he, he says it so much better than I can possibly say it. So this is long before Jesus is ever around. Well, actually, that's not true because he's the pre-existent Son of God. But this is, <laughs> this is long before the Gospels. Let's put it that way. Um, 
Daniel has this vision of one called the Son of Man while he's in Babylonian captivity. Echoes of Roman captivity because the kingdom of God is always subverting the spirit of empire, always. Okay, here we go. Uh, Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 to 14. The Son of Man is given dominion. Here's what it says. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancients of days, to the Father, to God, and was presented before him. And to him, to who? To this son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, this is why the court of the Gentiles is such a big thing for Jesus, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. This is not for a select few. Jesus is not Western white, blue-eyed, with long flowing blonde hair. He isn't owned by Western ideologies. Jesus owns the world, right? Um, All peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. When Jesus uses the phrase Son of Man to talk about himself, what he is doing in that moment is a Banksy move. He is prophetically declaring to everyone in the room, oh, that's my... I just get passionate here. To everyone in the room, and they all would have known it because they're Jewish people. He's declaring that that kingdom that you're talking about there, that's who I am and that's what I'm about. And when he says that, it makes people so indignant that they tear robes, start beating and whip him up, in, whip up into a frenzy and push him now toward crucifixion and death. Are you starting to see? What does this have to do with the cross? Everything. Because the cross is where this kingdom is established. And we'll get into that in just a second. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> cool. Just keep checking in. Keep checking in. If you're alive, give me some fives. Uh, if it's if you have any questions, smash some questions on the bottom of the screen there. Give me some hearts. Give me some love. Just want to make sure that we're all still here. I'm going to fast forward now to Mark chapter 15, verse 25 to 37. So again, we're, we're journeying from the triumphal entry. Uh, lots of stuff has now happened over here in this. Uh, lots of love, loving that. Thanks, guys. And um, now we're moving to the actual crucifixion, and we're going to pick out some things there. And we are landing at a place of the cross, so we'll get there now in just a second. Mark chapter 15, verse 25. Okay, lots of thumbs up, lots of hearts. That's good. Remember, you can smash questions there in the question box if you have any questions. I want to read this. Here we go. It was nine in the morning. (laughs) So it's early in the morning, right? Because they arrested Jesus in the middle of the night. They've been trying him all the early hours of the morning. And now it's in the morning. Uh, Nine in the morning when they crucified Jesus. The written notice of the charge against him read, listen carefully, the king of the Jews. Okay. Not spiritual guru. Not uh, life coach. Uh, (laughs) I'll stop there. You get the point. Jess Metcalf, you're a wonderful human, saying hello to you. Giannis, thank you for the kiss. Holy kiss to you too, bro. Uh, The king of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Prophetic Banksy art move. Um, Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so you are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Notice what's in the mind of the people. Okay, again, we've got to try and get into the context of the culture. They're shaking their heads and they're saying, so you're going to destroy this temple in three days. And then, mockingly, come down from the cross and save yourself. 
In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Have you ever heard these words from some rabbi? Blessed are you when you believe by seeing, but even more blessed are you when you believe without seeing. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him at noon. Darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. And then he said, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last and dies. A couple of observations from this text that are giving us some clues now to what the cross is all about. What is the sign above, the, above Jesus' cross? King of the Jews. Why? Because that's what people thought he was saying. Why? Because that's what he was saying. <laughs> okay. So if you're wondering who Jesus was, it's very, very clear. He came to be the Messiah. How were people mocking him and why? They were mocking him based on his assertions that he was the Messiah. And they were mocking him, mocking him, mocking him, right? And even that is prophetic Banksy art because their mocking of him is fulfillment of prophetic, uh, of prophecy from the Old Testament about what would happen to the Messiah, right? So again and again and again, I just want to get it into your minds. People, whenever you look at Jesus, the people who understood what Jesus was saying in a first century context would be astounded at the kind of Jesus we've created in a 2020 context very often. Because, because the Jesus of our modern conceptions is so removed from that original context that in many ways, and let me not say that universally, there are some beautiful, wonderful theologies out there loving it. What I want to say is that in so much of the Christian church, which is why so much of the Christian church, unfortunately, is quite weak in living out its faith. Uh, the gospel that is animating so much of the Christian church is compromised. And so our faith is compromised because, because our understanding of who the Christ is, the Messiah, this Jesus, what actually was happening in this moment has been so far removed. And we've just got this personal goosebumps, me and my Jesus space. And we don't understand that Jesus hasn't come into our life. We have come into his life. He hasn't been shrunken down into my story. I have been invited into his story. And his story, story is not only all of history, it's eternal. Okay, and we'll get there in, in just a second. What is the significance of Jesus' last words in Psalm 22? I just want to go here real quick. I'm not going to read the whole of Psalm 22. You should go home and read it. Or when you're done here, read it. I want to say there's two, two views here theologically. I kind of agree with Ellis Potter in the sense that when we understand the world through a Trinitarian lens, we can live in a 200% reality. If you know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. If you don't, go read Ellis Potter and the three theories of everything. Really good stuff. The point is, I think we can hold things in tension. So I don't think it needs to be either or. I think it can be a both and. And so on one level, people talk about this idea of when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's because in this moment, he, was, he felt the separation from the Father because of the weight of sin that had concentrated itself on Jesus in this point. 
and I, I don't have to argue with that. I can, I can get some of that. I can, I can see that there's consequence to the problem of evil and that Jesus became sin and in dying for us killed sin, which is what we'll talk about in a second. But at the same time, I want to say that there's another school of thought that says, as is customary within rabbinical tradition, Jesus was quoting the first line of a psalm, and he would have done this. Rabbis do this all the time in his time, is that they would quote the first line of a psalm, and then that would be an anchor point for the congregation to enter into the rest of the teaching, right? And so it, it's possible as well that Jesus is pulling a rabbi move here. He's quoting the beginning of Psalm 22, and here's what the powerful thing about Psalm 22 is. I won't read all of it to you, but we've got to get to the end part. Basically, he talks about God forsaking. He talks about how, how abandoned in the psalm, it talks about how abandoned the one on the cross would be in pain and suffering and hardship, etc. But then it makes this turn at the end, and it talks about how God will be victorious, how he will deliver the soul of the persecuted one. Um, and then it says this, uh, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. It carries on, carries on, carries on. And then it says this, it says, Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Echoes of the other gospel account of the cross where Jesus cries out, Tetelestai, it is finished, right? And so it is possible that in this moment of deepest uh, despair, this last word of Jesus is actually a declaration of victory because in the cross, Jesus won the victory over sin and the devil and evil and established the kingdom of God. It's so powerful, so powerful, so powerful. Are you with me? If you're tracking, uh, give me a high five or a hands up. Give me a, give me a something. Nicole Tamai. Good to see you. Give me some hearts if you're understanding. Uh, let's see where our time is. Okay, we've got one minute to two, which means we've been here for about an hour. We're going to start landing the plane now in the next 10 to 15 minutes. So if the Instagram live dies, I'll just start a new one. Jump back on as quickly as you can. Okay. Everyone good. Erica's there. Haley's there. Blaine is there. Beautiful. Mill is there all the way from Germany. She's holding up a heart. Loving that. Uh, sweet. Okay, here we go. <clears throat> so Jesus breathes his last and he dies. Now, 2,000 years later, we look back and we know what happened on the third day. I know, Hope Titalesta. So good. Um, we know what happened on the third day, right? But in this context, they didn't know. It's very clear they didn't know because of their response. They go into retreat, they go into mourning, they go into hiding, they go into loss. And I guess the question is, how would you have felt if you were them? Particularly if you're like uh, Peter, if you're the disciples, you've given up your whole life to follow this Jesus guy. He's been saying he's the Messiah. You bought that, you believed that. And now you're standing in front of his cross and he's dead. I mean, what do you do with that? Right? Like the weight of that, that's a real thing. And yet, they should have known that uh, Jesus wasn't dead. Why? Because he told him. So if you go to Mark, uh, it says this very, very clearly. Mark chapter 10, 32 to 45. I won't read all of it, but there's important stuff in here, and I'll refer to it later. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, so they're on the way now. Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. 
and they were taking a 12 again. And he began to tell them what was to happen to him and saying, listen carefully, if they had just taken some notes in this moment, they wouldn't have been surprised at the foot of the cross, right? See, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man, again, there's that phrase, the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and to the scribes and they will condemn him to death and they will deliver him over to the Gentiles, the Romans, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and they will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Jesus told them. They should have known. Here's a question. Let's see if there's a question here. Oh, we got some. Because obviously the devil wanted to kill him. But did he know the implications? Did the devil know the implications? Did the devil know what he was doing when he crucified him? I don't think he did. I don't think the the devil is omniscient, as in all-seeing. I don't think he's omnipresent, as in everywhere at at all times. And I don't think he's omnipotent, as in all-powerful. So the devil is a created being. And I think he has so many... Oh, you asked the question. Okay, cool. So here we go. Uh, So I think he has the same limitations in that sense. And I actually think um, that the devil thought he was winning. I think so. I think the devil invested a lot of energy in, in thinking he was winning. And so in some ways, there's this beautiful flip around of stuff. And we'll get to this now um, because uh, Jesus is almost like one of those excellent magicians in this moment. You know, whenever there's a magician who's doing a trick, there'll be the setup, the execution, and then the prestige. And the prestige is when he reveals what the trick is all about. And everyone's like, (gasps) and they pull back the curtain and the elephant's gone from the room. And they're like, whoa, and nobody saw that happening, right? I think it's kind of that moment on the cross. So I think that the devil thinks he's winning, he's winning, he's winning, he's winning, he's winning. And all of evil, and we'll talk about this in a second, the, the whole of evil, concentrates itself on Jesus in this moment. And in that moment, Jesus dies and the devil thinks, oh, I killed Jesus. And then there's the pulling back of the curtain. And the devil's like, what? Because actually he thought he was killing Jesus, but he was really just killing himself, right? Because Jesus became the curse. He became evil and on the cross in the flesh condemned sin which is what we're going to talk about. So I don't think the devil knew. I think this is a powerful setup by the eternal creator of the universe. And I think uh, particularly on the third day when he's resurrected, bro, there's a party going on. Although we do realize that in the supernatural, and we'll talk about that in a second, even when Jesus is dying, something's going on because as he dies, dead people start popping out of their graves. Have you ever read that? Yeah, there's much more going on here than meets the eye. There's always always two levels, the supernatural and the natural, right? And so on the natural, someone's dying on a cross and the supernatural kingdoms being established and the dead are being let out of their, their graves. It's uh, very cool. Anyway, let's keep going. <clears throat> so they should have known because Jesus tells them clearly and Isaiah prophesies about it all the time. And I want to go to Isaiah real quick because Isaiah leads us into our final thought. So Isaiah is basically this concept of the suffering servant, okay? And it talks about how uh, this one will be uh, given who will die and by his death will make many righteous, etc., etc., etc. So again, this is the kind of um, atmosphere that Jewish people are swimming in. This is the water that they're swimming in. This is what's flooding their minds, particularly if you're a religious leader or a scholar or something like that. This is your worldview, right? And what's interesting about Isaiah is all the different things that Jesus has taken uh, for us on the cross. So here's where it goes. It says, he was pierced, I'm in verse 5, 
Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5. It says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Carry on down to verse 6. It says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So, so far we've got transgression that Jesus took and iniquity that Jesus took. This is going to come in in just a second. Um, Go down to verse 10, all of, he was a guilt offering. In other words, we were guilty in some ways. That's a transgression issue. He dealt with that. Carries on, verse 11, the righteous one, my servant, will make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquity. So we've heard the word iniquity twice and the word transgression twice. And then it carries on at the bottom, verse 12, therefore I'll divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. There we are again three times, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Transgressor four times, three times. So we've got um, four times. So we've got transgression four times, iniquity three times, and sin once. And all of this is referring to what Jesus took on us, took for us on the cross. So, So what is happening here? Is the writer just getting excited and using different words to describe the same thing? I don't think that's the case. I think that the the Bible has a comprehensive view of evil. And the Bible understands evil primarily in three ways. And we see this throughout the, particularly the Old Testament and into the New in some ways. Number one, it talks about iniquity. Uh, the word for that is ava. It talks about transgression, pasha. And it talks about sin, kata. Okay. These are three different words describing evil from three angles. Iniquity means to be bent out of shape. Okay. So you can imagine a panel beater. There's a piece of metal and it's bent out of shape. That bent out of shapeness results in action. Transgression is about the breaking of a contract, particularly between two friends. Okay. And sin means to miss the mark. Now often, let me see, there's a question here. What was the importance of him being stabbed and water flowing out of his side? Beautiful question. We're going to get there. Hold that. If I don't answer it by the end of this, ask it again. Okay. So the Bible deals with evil holistically. That's where we are. Hey, Judy Rose Shaw. Always amazing to see you. Uh, One of the best Irish chicks all the way from Belfast. Um, Iniquity, being bent out of shape. Transgression, breaking of a contract. And sin, the missing of a mark. Why does this matter? Because according to Isaiah 53, all of that, all the sin, all the missing of the mark, all the iniquity, all the bent out of shapeness of of us, and all the transgression, all the breaking of a contract, all of it was put onto Jesus on the cross. In other words, the collective evil (laughs) of the entire universe gathered around Jesus on the cross and did its worst to him there. And in that, he defeated it. How do we know that? And what does that mean for us? Let's, now we're going to pace it up. Okay, so let's go back to the beginning. We're in Genesis now. So you're asking, okay, but so, so Jesus was the Messiah. He's talking about this new kingdom. That's going to be a different kingdom to the Roman kingdom that's currently in power at this time. When he dies on the cross, somehow he's talking about uh, how it's finished. What is finished? 
and we talk about, we see that Jesus is talking about uh, when he goes to Jerusalem, the son of man is going to do this kingdom. And then the two brothers say, when we're in your kingdom, can we sit on your left and your right? And he makes a comparison between the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God. And he says, no, 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 no. The kingdom of the world operates like this, but the kingdom of God operates like this. In other words, there's a lived reality that's a product of a way of seeing things or an internal reality. But there's another reality that Jesus is trying to come bring into the world. How is he going to bring that into the world? I want to suggest to you it's by defeating evil on the cross. Um, in Genesis chapter 1, we start to see what this actually means for you and for me now. Um, and, and this is where I want to go. The cross is not not about you. It's just not first about you. <laughs> okay, It's first about Jesus. And you find out why it's about you and what it means for you when you realize how much is about Jesus and what he's done. So in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, and I'm going to go over this quick because we don't have a lot of time. Uh, if you want to talk about it, we'll see you in the Zoom session later or DM me and we'll have a, a catch up and, and hang out and be mates. It says this, first of all, that when God created humans, he made them in his image. The, the word there is imago Dei, the image of God. Why is this so important? Because very often we talk about the doctrine of original sin. I want to challenge that and talk about the doctrine of original blessing. I want to say that where you start the story depends on where you end the story. And if we start with the depravity of man, as in everyone is so, so terrible, and you are, you are just basically a cockroach and God is kind of tolerating you, and he's just resisting his deep impulse and desire to throw you into the flames of hell, then we have misinterpreted how God sees humanity. And if that's the picture of our God, we will become like that God the more we worship him. And that's a big problem. Okay, but if you start in Genesis, what you realize is that humanity is not first broken. Humanity gets broken, but the original intention and vision for humanity in the heart of God is that we would actually be embodiments of the image of God in the world, Imago Dei. That's what it means to be human. People don't know what human is, right? So you say to some people, what does it mean to be human? And they use it as an excuse for their mistakes. So they go, don't judge me, I'm only human. But then on the other side, we use the word human to talk about good things, as in, oh, those people are humanitarians. So what that shows us is in our culture, we're confused about what it means to be human. But the Bible is not. The Bible is clear. To be human is to be like God, right? So that's where we start, but that's unfortunately not where we are right now, because you would say, and I would say, man, when I look at the world and I look at what human beings do, it doesn't look a lot like God. And I agree with you, it doesn't. So then we've got to ask the question, what went wrong and what did Jesus do to fix it on the cross? How did that work? Okay, so here's what went wrong. <clears throat> The Lord God put man in the garden and he, he, he asked him, he said, here's the deal. Uh, and this is Genesis chapter two. I'm not going to read all of this. I'm going to go over it and give you the, the outline. He says, here's the deal. You can eat from every tree in the garden. Just don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and then Adam goes, sweet. That's cool. That's good. Contract is established. Okay. What's transgression? Contract is established. Then uh, there's this conversation where evil is introduced into the story. Now, people want to ask, where did the devil come from, etc., etc. I get it. It's a question. I'm just saying it's not the primary question right now. And part of the reason why we don't get out of Genesis what we should is because we ask the wrong questions of Genesis. Uh, and it's not, it's not important where the devil came from, but it's just that that's not our focus right now. Okay, Our focus is to understand the human condition, what it means to be human what it means to be in relationship with God, and therefore what Jesus has done on the cross. That's what we're focusing on right now. And so 
Here's Eve living in her Imago Dei state, given stewardship of the garden, because that's what it means to be an image bearer, that we act on God's behalf in this physical space to reveal his reality. That's what it means to be human. Cage, you're beautiful, beautiful human. Um, Eve is at the tree. There's a, there's a contract that's been signed. There's an agreement that's been made. You can eat from every tree in the garden. Just don't eat from this tree. Evil is introduced. The Satan is introduced into the garden. And there's a deception that happens. An iniquity is introduced. And this deception, this bent out of shapeness, is a, comes in the form of a lie. That if you do eat from this tree of good and evil, in other words, if you enter into the place of self-determination, then you can be like God and, uh, and you, can, you can decide what's good and evil for yourself. And as we look back through human history, that lie is the seed of all brokenness. And then she eats of it. There's a breaking of the contract. And then the next thing, their eyes are opened. They enter into shame and they go into hiding in the garden from the presence of God. And the very thing that they were created for, i.e. connection with the creator and from the overflow of that to, to be stewards of the world so that what happens on earth looks like what is in heaven uh, is broken and shame drives them from the father. They're outside the garden, and now we fast forward to Cain, uh, and we're in Genesis chapter 3, verse 13. Um, well, we're not quite at Cain yet, and we talk about the first messianic expectation. There's this conversation where God is talking to the serpent, and he says, because you've done this, you'll be cursed. There'll be enmity between you and uh, the woman and her offspring and her descendant. And we know, we spoke about this yesterday, this is the first messianic prophecy. In other words, sin has entered, it's broken the human image, we're no longer a Margot day, but there is one coming who will restore that image. Jesus is coming to rehuman the world. Then it carries on, Cain and Abel, and it talks about how Cain and Abel are in conflict. And there's this conversation between Cain and God, and God says to Cain, very interestingly, he says, sin crouches at your door, and you must master it because it wants to have its way with you. Then Cain goes on to not master sin, and he ends up killing Abel. And then he has the conversation, am I my brother's keeper? And the world system says, no, you're not. But the kingdom of God says, actually, yes, you are. Because you should love your neighbor as you love yourself. And so the sin, which seems to be some kind of external entity, maybe a snake in the garden, influences the person of Cain. He loses his humanity and he enters into the kinds of actions that deconstruct the world and make them look less like heaven, less like the garden than they were intended to be. And so we start living in the repercussions of an internal iniquity that results in an external transgression, which means we start to miss the mark of what? Our humanity. We're no longer human. Are you with me? There's a question here. <clears throat> Believe him. Yeah, good. Praise God. Okay. Um, now you might say to me, Matt, that's really, really cool. I get it. What does this have to do with the cross, right? I would say this to you. There is a reason why you don't do what you want to do, but, uh, but you do do what you don't want to do, okay? You are not the self-determining, independent thinking person that you think you are. Uh, you are, you and I, unsubmitted to the person of God, are given over to the influence of another voice, I want to say that, right? Evil is real. 
Now, we, we don't believe that in our world, right? Because we live in a very naturalistic world that thinks that, that we are the sum total of reality. And the only things that are real are what we can see, taste, and touch. But the Bible's very clear that there's a world behind the world, right? That, that there is the physical, but then there is the eternal, the heavens and the earth, the Bible calls it, right? There is, and, and Jesus is king of all of it. And we'll talk about that in just a second. But if you want to talk about how Jesus intends to bring this new kingdom that he was talking about in the temple into the world, one of the first things you have to understand is that he's going straight to the source of the brokenness. Okay, he's going straight to the source of the brokenness. The brokenness that not only affects you and not only affects me, but the brokenness that through you and me taints the whole of creation. Jesus is going after the Satan. That's what's going down right now, okay? How do we know that? Uh, come with me to Ephesians chapter 6, right? Um, <clears throat> verse 10 to 12 over here. It says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, the Satan. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In the beginning of time, there was a snake in the garden. And it's that snake in the garden that has influenced and deconstructed the good world that God has created. And God is not passive when it comes to evil. He's not indifferent when it comes to evil. But he understands that if you just keep instituting kings in broken systems, those kings will become broken kings. It doesn't matter how good the system you have is. If your heart is broken, then you will break the system. It's what Dallas Willard says when he says Jesus came for nothing less than a revolution, a reformation. But his reformation and his revolution is not a revolution of external structures because those external structures won't save us. His is a revolution of the human heart because when we are transformed by the person of Jesus, we will be able to be channels of his righteousness and we will be able to stand against streams of injustice. And that is actually the only way that his kingdom will come on earth just as it is in heaven. Do you with me? There are powers and there are principalities. There are rulers and authorities in the spiritual womb, cosmic powers, right? Things that go beyond what we can understand and conceive. And if we don't submit ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus, if we don't enter through the gate that he has created in his life and live ourselves by the process that he has demonstrated in his life, we give ourselves over to those powers. And then we begin to be products of those powers. And we wonder why the world is broken. Are you with me? Carries on going. 1 Peter 5 verse 8 says this. Uh, be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Devil's real. Uh, Romans 3.23, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So some people would go like, okay, cool. Maybe the devil is conceptually real, but that doesn't affect me. And I want to say to you, the Bible, t- <laughs> the Bible disagrees with you. Because the Bible says that you've sinned. And the Bible says that I've sinned, right? And that's what we do often. We go like, hey man, God, wouldn't you just kill all the evil in the world? Uh, just kill all the bad people. And C.S. Lewis responds to this. And he says, wouldn't it be so easy if we could just get all the evil people, put them in a corner and just kill them? 
and then there will be a, a good place. But then he points out that the line between good and evil doesn't run between people, but between every human heart. And so you and I are part of the problem because we've been tainted by the curse, just like everybody else have, has, and we need a savior just like everybody else does. Yes. Uh, how do you know this? How do you know this, Matt? Well, 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 says this. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. I'm not saying it. I'm just letting you know that the Bible says it, right? So if you're exempting yourself from the problem, I want to say to you that the Bible disagrees with you. Uh, you and I are part of the problem. Uh, carries on. What's the big deal about sin? Romans chapter 6, 23. For the wage of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's the good news, man. That's the good news that the Messiah came. And just like they were expecting, he did bring a new kingdom. Except his kingdom is not of this world, just like he said. Because he understands that for this whole story, they've been trying to put kings in place, put kings in place, put kings in place. And isn't that the conversation that Israel had right in the beginning? We want a king. And God says, no, 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 no. You don't want a king. I'm your king. But then they say, no, we want a king like the other nations have kings. And then Jesus, God makes a concession. He says, fine, if they want a king, give them a king. But tell them that kings will do what kings have always done. They're going to take your woman and your children. They're going to send you off to war. They're going to take your profit, etc. Kings will abuse, right? Because a broken heart, even in the best system, produces a broken product. Are you, are you with me? And so what Jesus is doing is he is coming to be the Messiah. He is coming to liberate Israel, but he's coming to do it in the place that counts by taking out the real enemy. <laughs> By destroying the works of the devil and by enthroning himself as king of the universe. How do we know that that's true? Um, uh, Romans chapter 7, Paul's talking about exactly what we're talking about here. He says, I do what I don't want to do and I don't do what I do want to do. And who's going to save me from this wretched man that I am? And then he says, but praise God for Christ Jesus. Why praise God for Christ Jesus? Because... In Christ Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In other words, you can come out of the bushes. Adam and Eve, you can stop hiding because the shame that you feel Jesus has dealt with on the cross. That's one of the massive declarations of the cross. If you go to Revelation chapter 21, the new heaven and the new earth, the gates are always open, friends. Jesus has declared that all people, yes, even the Gentiles, that's why he's throwing things over in the temple, are welcome to come to him now. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. The gates are wide open and you can come back into friendship with God where you really rediscover your humanity. But it even goes further than that. It doesn't only take away your shame. It says, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free, free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law could not do, weakened by our flesh, by our ego. By sending, how, what has God done? By sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned what? What did he condemn? He condemned sin in the flesh. So in other words, Jesus became the curse. He did the magic trick. It was the pet prestige. All uh, N.T. Wright makes this uh, beautiful analogy. He says, imagine it's like a bathtub. And from Genesis, this bathtub is full of water. From Genesis, the plug gets pulled out. And all of history is gathering toward this point on the cross. And the water is flowing, 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 flowing. And you know when you get a bathtub and it goes, Shh, all of the evil of all of creation goes 
on Jesus, concentrates on Jesus, holistically, iniquity, transgression, sin, the Satan, all of it is is focused on Jesus on the cross in that moment. And in his death, he condemns sin. He defeats darkness. It's done. The power of sin now no longer has a hold over you when you are in Christ Jesus, because number one, your shame is dealt with. And number two, you come into the power of Jesus where those chains have been broken off of you. It's powerful. The kingdom of God is established. Where is it established? Well, what does Jesus say? The kingdom of God is among you, within you, here now. We'll talk more about that tomorrow. Um, Colossians chapter 2, 13 to 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of us our trespasses by canceling the record of our debt that stood against us with its legal demands, transgression. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus. He, he made a spectacle. See the, see, the devil was a featherweight boxer in a heavyweight fight. And he thought he had a shot. And the whole time he thought he was winning. But then Jesus publicly humiliated him by defeating him through his own death. That's what you have to understand. So powerful. For God so loved the world. Now, oh, 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 I want to get you. And I'm going to draw now. And then we really are going to land. I know I've said that a hundred times. So now you would say, how does this reframe the cross? Here's what I want you to understand. Um, Is the cross about you? Yes, but it's not first about you. So John 3.16 is true. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. You don't have to die the death of sin because the enemy has been defeated in Jesus. So come to him, submit yourself to him, and you can enter into that life. But listen, this is only powerfully true because something else is powerfully true. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 tells us, Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 tells us that since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise, Jesus, partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. Through death he destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So, yes, you are saved by the cross, praise God, but only because the devil is defeated by the cross. Are you with me? So the cross is not only about you, it's about the defeating of the devil, but it's actually even bigger than that because in Philippians chapter two, we see that this is really what the cross is actually all about over here. It says that Jesus was obedient to death, even death on the cross. And because he was obedient to death, on even death on the cross, the father has exalted him to the highest place and seated him in heavenly places. And then it says this, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. At the cross, Jesus, God became king. Of, of your life? No, 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 no. Of your city? No. Uh, of your country? No. Of the world? Of just the world? No. Of the universe. Everything in heaven and on earth and below the earth will worship Jesus, bow their knee before Jesus, and they will declare that he is king to the glory of God.
And so your personal salvation matters. But Jesus is not asking to be minimized into the smallness of your story. Jesus can save you because he is king of the universe, but his saving comes with implication. And it means that those who believe in their mouth and confess with their heart that Jesus is Lord, that he has a new kingdom with a new reality, and that our saving is an ushering into that reality. Those are the people who can be saved from the death of the enemy and live out the reality of his new kingdom. That's what the cross of Jesus is all about. And that, my friends, in the midst of COVID-19, that is massive hope massive hope. Now, how do we know any of this is true? I'm going to tell you that in uh, the next session when we talk about the grave, the tomb, and the table. 